you live from the sixth floor of the Hiawatha. It is the System Failure Podcast number four. How are we doing this week, Nate? Hey, good, Brian. How are you making it? Oh, we're doing okay. Well, I uh, came locked and loaded this week with some exciting notions about Platonism to get into, um, but I'm given to understand that um, you had a few thoughts uh, related to last week's um, kicking open of Pandora's box that was the episode where we talked about Marxism. Um, uh, what have you been thinking about uh, since last week when that episode went off? All right, well, like, well, like we were talking about like what it would actually take to tax the rich, right? And, well, I mean, obviously what needs to happen is public opinion needs to change. And so, yeah, like when Bernie Sanders was running against Hillary Clinton, well, people were like, we can't vote for Bernie because he's a socialist. <laughs> and, I mean, that was, I mean, I, how are you, how could anyone, like, realistically be against, like, Medicare for all? Or, I mean, or, I don't know, I guess taxing the rich. Or, and, I, you know, by the rich, we aren't talking, like, middle class people in America, which is probably making up to, like, a million dollars or so. But, I mean, I, well, we're talking about, like, actually taxing corporations or, I don't know, just having some kind of reasonable tax code where everyone pays taxes fairly. Well, we need to have reasonable taxation, and then the government needs to actually do something good with that money. Yeah. Um, okay. So there's this notion of la, la petite bourgeoisie. Um, that's to say, people who have like a lot of money but are rich. We're, um, we're talking about taxing the people who have a certain relation to production. That is to say, they own the joints that that make money. That's really the subset that we're talking about. Um, I hear my man Adam Carolla constantly banging on about pay your fair share, but the Ace Man I think is the quintessential example of um, la petite bourgeoisie. I mean, the man is wealthy enough to have collector, you know, sports cars, but but he's not he's not someone that owns um, the labor of you know thousands or tens of thousands of people the way that like a Ford Motor Corporation would. So I think the distinction um, between but when we say tax the rich, we're, we're not talking about you know your dentist. We're talking about people people like who, who own walmart like the walmart family because that their bank accounts are where money is pooling uselessly when it needs to be transplanted to a different part of the economy where it can actually be spent and used that's really i, I think uh, the the fundamental issue now you also made a point about mr sanders and it is true that um we heard a lot about how you couldn't vote for bernie because he was a socialist but that was also the exact same moment. It was like the first time that young people finally said, we don't care about the socialism thing. I mean, we've got student loans. We've got housing prices that are out of control. God help you if you should need to use a hospital. Something like Medicare for All, which you mentioned, has a the last poll I saw a 78% approval rating among the general public. That's everyone, but, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever your thing is. 78% of us are in favor of Medicare for All. And yet it gets no traction at all in Washington, D.C., thanks to the first horse past the post game that we've all been suckered into playing now for several generations. Well, yeah. Uh, so people say that we, like Medicare for all was too expensive is what they said during that election. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, the, the canard I hear during every election cycle is that um, the health care insurance you know, racket gets 50 cents for every, for every health care dollar spent in this country. And these people don't perform any surgeries or prescribe any drugs whatsoever they just shuffle paper around and at the end of the paper shuffling they come out with half the money that we're all you know spending on healthcare every year it's an absurd situation and the nature of the two-party duopoly on capitol hill 
is uh, apparently a good enough distraction to keep us at each other's throats instead of demanding real action from our feckless leaders who do, you know, obviously do nothing but um, what their donors command them to do, and their donors do not want to hear any medical care for all talk. Well, to what extent is the problem really... I mean, maybe everyone should just be taxed less, but I mean, the real issue is that, you know, we spend all our money sending bombs to the Ukraine. I mean, that's, uh, well, the other major bugaboo, I mean, supposing they change the taxes in a way that uh, was fairer, you, you still have the issue, of course, of the government sending all our money <laughs> or spending it on bombs and you know the military industrial complex uh yep yeah we definitely do yeah so there's the issue of money pooling like too much blood pooling in one extremity of a patient you have to kind of get that circulation flowing again and then a lot of that is directly caused by like i would put those two things in a hierarchy all of the wealth that when you when you say like, we're going to give money to Ukraine so that they can give it back to our arms dealers, you know, Lockheed and Northrop Grumman, these Raytheon, these corporations. Like, that money, when you say the Iraq war cost a trillion dollars, that money stayed here. It's like um, we, uh, we, the people, paid that to defense contractors and government contractors of every description in the Iraq fiasco. So, yeah, there's, yeah, but I guess those are really two separate issues. I think that they could all be cleared up by greater democracy, a greater democratic control over the over the government. Um, instead of this insane sideshow with Democrat and Republican circus that we are just all a captive audience for. Well, I think that the issues sort of are related in that they're both kind of downstream consequences of our military industrial complex or, our, I don't know, our, I mean, I guess it's all part of the capitalist complex, uh, I suppose you would say. But, well, obviously that would be good to change. And so making that change, well, is tricky. So like, imagine that, you know, things were to change. Well, like, just think about like the petrodollar though, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, I guess the idea of the petrodollar, I mean, you and I have talked about at length and isn't especially controversial between us. But the idea of the petrodollar is that the United States, you know, military commands that gasoline must be bought and sold in American dollars. And uh, just over the course of history, you know, America has gone to war with countries that have threatened to go off this dollar standard, like Libya and Iraq are examples. Syria. In Syria. And so, yeah, gas is cheapest in the United States. And so if you don't really understand the petrodollar, I mean, just try to think about why gas is so much cheaper in the United States than everywhere else. So a socialist revolution would probably have to come hand in hand, like with uh, the end of the petrodollar, though, right? Well, um, I, can't, I got two scenarios. The end of the petrodollar sure is a scary one. The notion here, as you mentioned, is that um, we get people to pay for their own military encirclement by forcing them to buy oil in U.S. dollars only. Uh, that, that means that all these countries um, are sending us, they're exporting their goods, their imports to us. And then when they send their international shipping containers full of sneakers here, they get a bunch of U.S. dollars in return. And um, we want to make sure that they're forced to use those U.S. dollars, that they're forced to come back and buy treasuries with those U.S. dollars is really their only option. And the petrodollar is another example uh, of the same idea where because people have to keep coming to the U.S. for dollars, either they have to export or they have to borrow it from the Federal Reserve or both from our Federal Reserve in order to buy the oil they need to run their various economies. It's a good stranglehold to have on the world economy. It, it, it creates a demand for your treasury bonds, no matter how wild you are with your spending, or at least it has thus far. But I think that even without the petrodollar, we're hurtling towards another kind of 
collapse. Um, the issue is that the means of production of uh, arms is privately owned and they're looking to maximize their profits. And so they use pre-existing profits as political power to buy politicians or to buy media outlets or to plant ideas in the media to try to gin up public support for a war. And uh, that's happened so often in history, you, know, they re you don't even really need to go into examples of it. But uh, yellow journalism, they call it, the kind of journalism that tries to get people to agree to go to war, to try to foment that consensus among the public. Like we said, that, that, that issue is kind of downstream of the structure of ownership. If we ran things more democratically, there's no way we'd ever vote to spend all of our treasure and all of our blood in the sands of Iraq. Yeah, that would be a ridiculous decision for, for us to make it as, at a democratic level. It kind of has to be foisted upon us. But the second kind of collapse I mentioned has to just do with the banks and the way that um, housing prices or banks are connected to the massive piles of debt that the bank creates by loaning us all our mortgages. It's just gotten to the point where, in my job, we are understaffed um, to the point where we can barely function. We've really reached the bottom of the barrel. As to, if we lost one more person, we would just fail to perform our, our duty. We just, we just don't have, we have so few people. Part of the issue is that our salaries are, it's a public institution, so our salaries are decided by the town council. And they just can't seem to, they just can't, no one apply, replies to the job postings, no matter how many they put out on Indeed.com, because the pay isn't going to cover the cost of rent here in the city of Portland or even in the immediately surrounding area. And so I think that we've allowed the banks to tack on zeros to everyone's mortgage contract over the course of several generations now. And we are really at a tipping point where jobs aren't gonna be able to afford to pay people the, the money they would need to pay their rent every every month. So it just becomes, well, I can, I can get evicted and go to work every day, or I can get evicted and stay home and smoke a bunch of pot and play video games. And the answer is a no brainer. It also kind of explains why the homeless population has ballooned just at the moment when COVID really deranged the housing market unrecognizably. So there's a couple of methods of, of collapse. Like we, yeah, I, I, the, the, the loss of the petrodollar and uh, a collapse in demand for U.S. Treasury bonds and uh, the, our resulting inability to pay our debts and just a total annihilation of the entire system of money and credit and would certainly be wild to behold. But if it just becomes to where a critical mass of people just to say, you know what, it's just not worth going to work. Um, there's, we don't have, it, I'm, I'm doing like four people's jobs at work. It's impossible to keep up with, it's, it's stressful. It doesn't pay enough to pay the rent anyway. Why don't I just stop paying my rent and stop going to work and just see, kind of see what happens? It's like the tipping point of Malcolm Gladwell we mentioned one or two pods ago. I think when it gets to that point, it'll start to happen fast. What do you think? What could a possible collapse scenario look like specifically to you, Brian? See, I guess what I think, it, like if the people try to throw off the yoke of their capitalist oppressors, I think that uh, like bad things will happen. And so... I mean, the effects of 9-11 on day-to-day -day American life and now the COVID, well, I, I guess you could get conspiratorial and say that the powers of the B arranged these incidents to happen, or you could just say that the powers that be took advantage of situations that happened on their own, basically. Uh, but, well, they'll always take advantage of every situation to further... Uh, like whatever happened during the COVID, we were all driven mad, like successfully. And it's going to make it a lot easier for us to be controlled and not have a socialist revolution, right? Um, yeah, well, you're right. When the plague arrived in Europe in 1347 and knocked out half the peasants that lived there, the remaining peasants, as we said, 
got a funny idea where they, instead of pledging fealty to one feudal lord, they would play one lord off another in a bidding war and try to see who would pay them the most of our labor. And that really gave birth to the modern paradigm where we rent out our labor to the highest bidder. Um, but when that happened, they tried to pass a bunch of laws to violently enforce the old social order where it was like illegal for you to work for somebody else, <laughs> even if you wanted to. And um, that was a really uh, violent upheaval and a really tough time in Europe when all that went down. It was part of the broader Protestant Reformation, which was just a kind of a, a gray, dismal struggle. But the Protestant Reformation took a couple of generations to fully shake out, if, if it really ever did really fully shake out. I do think that things happen faster in the modern, modern era, just given the pace of technology and the rate at which news can travel. I think that we can expect not generations, but maybe a few years of difficult or dysfunctional times. But haven't we already been through a few of those already? I feel like we are going to hopefully maybe get credit for time served <laughs> um, because the pace of modern technology is so much faster than historical paces. Well, you were asking me what collapse would look like. And well, I mean, one thing it would look like is, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be like a fight for freedom <laughs> inevitably. But you were talking before about uh, like the collapse of the petrodollar and well there's just this like this war in the ukraine well i mean there are some who would say you know it's pushing russia and china closer together which is kind of like a threat to the petrodollar i mean it doesn't seem like the conflict is going well in the ukraine uh it certainly it seems like it's going to be another long and drawn out affair i don't know it feels like like naughty to say <laughs> that the war in the ukraine is not going well i think we're just supposed to believe it's going great but i mean which uh military engagement <laughs> by america has gone well i i guess maybe people just don't remember iraq and afghanistan anymore uh but i think we're in for another shocking situation that's uh, n uh not gonna be good on us uh, this is what it was like back during the iraq war times if you weren't around then it's worse than that because our own diplomats like some of our more sober diplomats are have screamed about this since since we started you know adding countries to nato in the wake of our 1992 promise to the disbanding soviet union that we wouldn't do so i i like weinstein's um way of thinking about iraq there's the there's the territorial sovereignty pair of glasses you got to have that lens of course you can't go invading other countries um we have to be against that in all times and places then there's the um spheres of influence lens through which you have to view it and realize that the Ukraine is um, the back door that Russia has been invaded through many times now. And the last one being an absolutely brutal invasion that we don't really have a historical analog for here in the U.S. Um, during World War II. I think the numbers I heard on Dan Carlin's Ghost of the Ostfront podcast is 27 million Soviets, 20 million Germans, and half a million Americans perished in that conflict so i that you just have to realize that yeah we reacted pretty aggressively when there were soviet missile bases in cuba um, during the 60s during the cuban missile crisis we have to understand that they're not going to be cool with ukraine uh, joining nato and putting ukraine on the path to join nato which i think it's a membership action plan mpa is what they put in place in 2008 in bucharest um, in romania they had that summit I think it was 2008 when they had a membership action plan for ukraine to eventually join nato now they haven't yet but that really puts and it was depressing and the aforementioned dan carlin put out a common sense at the time in which he said he predicted all like most of what's going down he said this is a this it makes a, a confrontation over the ukraine inevitable um this is a ridiculous diplomatic blunder uh yeah so just one thing that's interesting about uh this war in the ukraine compared to the war in iraq days 
is that politically, you know, George W. Bush, uh, he basically had the political backing of the evangelical right and, you know, Republicans, like it was a lot of, I don't know, I guess trailer park Americans or, uh, I don't know, pretty Republican people who don't live in the cities. He had the backing of the Republicans. And so I guess that those, uh, well, just back then, everyone knew the war in Iraq was a crazy like war for oil. And like, at least um, that's what me and my chums in high school talked about. It was just a shameful. <laughs> uh, yeah, people forget the biggest protests in world history, I think, are, are still the 2003 protests against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Yeah. And this time around, rather than like the Republican base, well, they've really like permeated the political left, like normal uh, more, like normal to me, I guess, city folk. To them, yeah, well, I feel like suggesting that the war in the Ukraine is not going well. <laughs> to those, those people get mad at you. Well, yeah, so you mentioned conspiracy earlier, and I think that when you want to talk about uh, the titanic years that turn slowly beside, behind the facades of power, you have to realize that the real powers that be wear the institutions that we're familiar with, like costumes or like masks, they'll don one and discard it. Good example, the Christian church, you know, Christianity started out as the scrappy contender, you know, up and coming in its weight class, um, ready to take on the grizzled veteran of the Roman Empire, and then only to see, you know, only to age through the whole life cycle and itself become the corrupt grizzled veteran around the time of the Renaissance, yeah. to be taken on by the young contender, the uh, a nexus of uh, banking and scientific authorities, and then eventually those same authorities become decayed and they follow the same life cycle. And so the evolution of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, it's just like you say, you know, um, in the 2000s, the Democrats seemed like the good guys. And in the 2020s, the Democrats seemed like the bad guys. And it makes people like you and me who grew up identifying as Democrats mightily confused. But I think that's the good cap, bad cop routine. That's the sideshow that keeps us from ever talking about the fact that 78% of us are in favor of Medicare for all. What gives on Capitol Hill, people? Well, again, we were talking about yeah, how soon is change going to happen in the last podcast? And, well, there's just a lot of forces out there. There's the AI uh, yeah, technology. There's uh, this crazy war in the Ukraine. There's the, the looming debt crisis. Uh, there's just a lot of factors that, well, I mean, I don't know. A lot of change is coming. And I, I don't know. You have, to, you have to fight for truth. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I it's I think it might be a decent contention to suggest that in times or periods of system failure, it gets harder to speak the truth. A good example might be hypernormalization of the late Soviet period when everyone knew the Soviet Union was no longer functional. But they didn't have an alternative, so they just kind of kept going to work and they didn't know what else to do. It, it's harder to speak the truth when everyone has to sort of live a lie because they don't have a, an alternative to live up to. Another good example might be the late medieval period when you would get burned at the stake for suggesting that the earth orbited the sun and not vice versa. The more dysfunctional society becomes, the harder it is to speak the truth, I think is a decent contention, highly defensible. Yeah, well, it's pretty apparent. Probably the truth is, you know, is that we, well, we are in a time of change for all the reasons we've talked about, and it's happening like as we speak. And, uh, I think it's what all the things mean, like all the crazy homeless people in the street, the madness that's like the front page of Reddit. 
the way everyone's like super uh, we're like all quick to fight each other i don't know like we're we're going over the dam i think is what's going on yeah the roller coaster ratchets are getting farther and farther apart like click 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 that's exactly how it seems to me too well i mean i think we're over the top is i mean i think we're, we're in the actual plunge yeah. right now you feel it's, that uh <laughs> rise in your stomach like it's happening yeah and so yeah i think it's a, a challenging time uh, well i guess the more challenging it is to speak the truth you can tell you uh it's it, yeah that's your indication yeah well um we'll have to hope to break the frozen log jam of conversation i think around marxist or socialist or communistic even ideas um, again not to adopt those notions wholesale um, un and uncritically but just to have an adult conversation or adult collision with them because I don't think we can move forward much further. The old employer-employee model was a great one coming out of the after the plague ravaged Europe, and it's lasted all this time. But the reality is that when technology replaces workers, you're going to have a problem with that model of, of the economy. And we're starting to reach that critical mass of technology. Well, I guess back in the 70s, and we're still we still haven't reckoned up with it. We're putting off reckoning with it. And each generation that we put off reckoning with it, it gets weirder and weirder. And as you say, harder to tell the truth and harder to tell what the truth is because everyone's too afraid to utter it. And yeah, so that's exactly where it seems like we are now. And I would imagine it would have been very similar sort of eerie feeling when the medieval society started breaking up or when the Soviet Union fell. It must have been starkly eerie, just like it is now. All right. Well, I guess that's what I have to say about the last podcast. That puts a bow on the notion of Marxism. Yeah, okay, great. Well, um, well, let's switch isms then, and uh, we'll just talk a little bit about Platonism now. Again, these th this is related to system failure because we're noticing the the waves of civilization coming and going you know civilization achieves a great peak then it collapses into a trough only to rise to a higher peak collapse back into a trough and to rise to a higher peak and we're suggesting here that our wave is cresting or breaking and that's the moment in history we're living in so to flesh out some historical context and to notice some interesting historical patterns the contention here is that in each age whenever things start to break down whenever the the titanic years that you know that run society begin seizing up and stop functioning there's this funny idea that always starts to bubble up from the very corners of society it starts seeping in from somewhere unexpected you could never predict where and that something is platonism and platonism is a little hard to explain but i'll do my best here when when you recognize say a chair that recognition is like, it's like you see things in your senses, in your visual field that match what a chair is. And you have a, you have a template in your mind that you compare these visual objects to. And that template is what allows you to recognize or categorize things in reality. And this is our handle on reality. This is how we navigate it. Plato in book I think, seven of the Republic had his allegory of the cave in which he suggested that the reality we experience, the four dimensional matrix that we're all living out our, our lives in, that thing is like a shadow cast by a higher dimension object that we recognize as an ideal or an idea. The notion here is that the idea exists independently of the thinker in the way that a record might exist independently of a record player. The, the idea, like for example, that a German gentleman by the name of Leibniz and an English gentleman by the name of Newton invented calculus at the same time, really does suggest that ideas exist out there and then they can pop into and out of our heads, you know, like you might pop a record in and out of a record player. 
because it seems like calculus was an idea whose moment had arrived and two different people arrived at it independently is just amazing. And um, yeah, Plato referred to it as the realm of forms, this where, where the perfect ideal of a chair exists, you know, the thing that you compare chairs to to recognize them. Since the 4D matrix we're all living in is a shadow or a lower order projection of this higher dimensional realm of forms or ideas, that suggests that the primary reality is really the reality of forms and ideas. And so this is the insight that keeps coming back in history again and again. It always turns up when societies start to crumble. And um, I, my three touchstones I always like to go to, of course, are um, classical Rome as it collapsed, medieval society as it collapsed, and what's happening today. Now, Platonism is related to Christianity. If you type into ChatGPT, what are the, what are the ways in which Christianity is derivative of Platonism? It'll give you a seven-point essay. But this whole notion of the realm of forms really gives you an insight in a single example. The idea of a realm of perfection that is outside of space and time as we understand it is an idea that the Christians obviously took into their, their own constellation of ideas as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or whatever, whatever word you would use to describe it. And the connection between Platonism and Christianity was so strong that in the second and third centuries in Alexandria, which is where the Pharaoh's lighthouse once stood watching over the Mediterranean, it's right there on the edge of the sea on the Nile Delta, Alexandria that has the name of Alexander. The Christians living there, the Gnostic Christians, also went by another name in the second and third centuries, and they called themselves Neoplatonists because they recognized this old idea of Platonism, and they took it, they recognized it within Christianity, and they took it very seriously. The Neoplatonists wouldn't argue that Jesus was the only son of God and that only through his church can you achieve salvation. They were affirming the divine in everyone. Their message was a little bit different than that, that Jesus was, considered himself an example of the Son of God versus the only Son of God. Like if Jesus is here to tell you that you are also the Son of God, um, that's a really different message than you must try to live up to me, Jesus, the perfect example. But you can never do that because I'm the boss's son, and so you're just going to live a life of guilt and shame for which you have to pay the church monetarily to expiate. That was really the regime that... The government of the Roman Empire, the oligarchy, you've got to think mafia when we're talking oligarchy. These are, after all, Italians. The ruling families of Rome, they, they wanted a church that was going to help them stay in power and help keep the wealthy with their stranglehold on power. And so they decided when Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire that the Neoplatonists of Alexandria, the Gnostics, were to be excommunicated as heretics. Um, they would, this is, this is um, under the emperor Theodosius in 412, I think it was, uh, they ordered that all pagan works would be destroyed. They're trying to set up, you see, a monopoly or a toll booth to heaven. And so they don't, they have to destroy all other competitors ideologically and in order to make that, in order to charge people monetarily. And so all the pagan gods, all the pagan thinkers, gone. The library of Alexandria raised. Plato will be lost history for a thousand years. But... It is interesting to notice that even as it was co-opted, as the Roman Empire collapsed, Christianity went from a fringe, persecuted minority to hammering at the gates of Rome in just a few generations' time. This religion, it was anti-debt and anti-rich, which must have been very refreshing in a Roman Empire that had a wealth disparity like we're seeing today, where a tiny number of people owned all the property. Will Durant guesses that 2,000 Romans owned property in a city of 5 million in uh, 198 BC. That is a wild number. 
Possibly also this Christian religion with its notion of a kingdom of heaven was really appealing to the inhabitants of the Roman Empire. But whether it was the, as Will Durant calls it, the communism of the apostles or the promise of an afterlife that wasn't as miserable as this one, Christianity took over Rome in record time. And that's the key property of these Platonistic ideas. Not only do they bubble up in the corners of society when they stop functioning, but they spread rapidly and have a huge impact in a short amount of time. Well, as we said earlier, the church kind of graduated from being the scrappy young contender to the aged grizzled veteran. And by the summer of 1347, when the plague arrived, things had really taken a turn for the worse. There were popes and anti-popes mutually excommunicating one another. Sexual malpractice and conspicuous consumption of wealth became legendary at the Vatican. And people became disgusted enough with the church when the plague came around and the church was powerless to prevent they, the church, the idea they had was that the church would was that the plague was caused by the wrath of God. So it was supposed to be the sinful that got sick, but the church clergy got sick just at the same rates as everyone else. They clearly had no handle on what was going on whatsoever, and this punched a massive hole in the credibility of the church. That's very interesting when you get the out of the plague, the, the, the crumbling of the medieval economic system, when peasants and serfs start trying to play one lord off against another, and you get the rise of the Medici banking houses, and Platonism starts to make a comeback once again. Um, the Medici ruling family of Florence, as we mentioned one or two podcasts ago, was a family that was obsessed with magic. They were noted alchemists. They kept weird cabinets called wunderkameras filled with strange alchemical artifacts, you know, dried biological specimens like a narwhal horn, for example. They crushed up gems into powders and ingested these powders thinking it would give them magical properties. But the Medicis also became obsessed with going back into the past, defying the church and digging up the old Greek and Roman works as a way of coping with the fact that their system was collapsing. They didn't know what else to do. And they used the same logic that you might use when you've lost your car keys. You, you might go back to the last place you remember having them. And the last time the Italians remember being great was when the they were the Roman Empire. You, you could look around then as now and see the spectacular ruins of ancient Rome all around you. Imagine seeing those aqueducts, but knowing that you had no ability to rebuild them. <laughs> I mean, that would be an, it would be an eerie experience. Tolkien-esque to see those kind of majestic ruins that you know your, your own society is incapable of replicating. So, the Medicis dispatched their agents to every corner of the Mediterranean basin to dig up anything Greek, anything pre-Christian they could find. They had had it with the church, and they wanted to see what they could shake up. Um, and they had a lot of money being a banking house. It was virtually no object to them. So, the Medici agents started bringing in all kinds of crumbly old manuscripts from, like, Syria and from Greece and Turkey. And that's how Plato, got, after a thousand years, got reintroduced back into Western civilization. And it's interesting... We told the story about old man Cosimo and the Corpus Hermeticum ordering a halt to that translation of Plato when he realized he could get his hands on that magic book. Um, so it's very interesting to find magic once again playing a role in the collapse of a prior civilization, or should I more more accurately say the rise of a new one. That That's really the source of the new systems that replace the old ones. In this instance, magic morphed into science. The astrologer became the astronomer. The alchemist became the chemist. The Isaac Newton we previously mentioned, who dreamed up calculus and formalized the laws of gravitation, also was a devoted alchemist. You have to realize that magic morphed into science. The, the plane was kind of built as it was flying. And science 
gave rise to new technology that could then be leveraged by entrepreneurs to bring down the cost of production. This is what the Industrial Revolution is all about. You bring in the spinning jenny and the power loom to automate the textile industrial process and thereby bring the price of production way lower than it used to be when textiles had to be hand-woven. And that's how you get uh, all of these gains in productivity that is the hallmark of the modern age. Science brings technology. Technology is leveraged by entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs get their startup capital from the banks. And you can see how this whole system got started that we have where banks give out seed money or startup capital. Entrepreneurs take that seed money and startup capital, invest in technology, automate the means of production slowly but surely at first, but faster and faster as the years wear, by, uh, wear on. And you end up at an inflection point like we ended up in the 1970s. But it's interesting that magic was the catalyst as it morphed into science that drove all of this growth. Magic, uh, the, as we've said in the past, the magical worldview is really that um, reality is like a lucid dream that you experience when you're sleeping. When you're aware that you're dreaming, you're able to kind of manipulate the dream. And that is the view of reality that, that magic torp normally has. The, the corpus hermeticum, as previously mentioned, refers to humankind as the brother of God and suggests that you should compare yourself to God, which was a terrible blasphemy according to the church. But notice that once again, in the late medieval period, in the early modern period, we have Platonism rearing its ugly head. Well, re rearing its head and being the catalyst for change that eventually brings about the new era, the new way of organizing things that carries forward into the future until, like we said, that way of organization eventually lives long enough to see itself become the villain. So then the question is, how is Platonism manifesting it today? Because once again, we have a old system that's fallen into decline. How is magic manifesting itself today? Well, uh, magic Platonism manifesting itself today. It's not going to be magic. It's not going to be Christianity. This time it's the psychedelic tradition. In 1938, as we mentioned, Swiss chemist Albert Hoffmann first synthesized LSD. And the impact that just that molecule alone has had on our culture is virtually incalculable. Obviously, the Beatles made a lot of the creative impetus they got from that substance. They made no bones about it at all. They graduated from the surf guitars of I Wanna Hold Your Hey and they graduated from that to like the White Album and Abbey Road and Sgt. Peppers and LSD according to their testimony was a big part of that journey. And then of course Albert Hoffman wrote his letter to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had, like the Beatles, made no bones about the impact of LSD on his own creative process. And no less illustrious source than the Wall Street Journal um, this past June called psychedelics, the engine that drives Silicon Valley. The, the impact, in, in short, that these sorts of compounds are having on our society is every bit as profound as the impact of magic on medieval society and of Christianity on Roman society. What does psychedelics have to do with Platonism? Imagine like a mill pond on a very calm day where you can see your reflection perfectly. The trap people fall into looking into that mill pond is that they mistake the reflection for themselves. The reflection in the pond is analogous to your ego. You end up identifying with that reflection and worrying about what's going to happen to the reflection and, you know, what's it going to be like when that reflection reaches the end of its life. And psychedelics are like dropping a rock into that mill pond. It perturbs the reflection, in other words, so much that you, you see the illusion instantly for what it is. That, that opening of the brain, I think, has something to do with the creativity unleashed by these psychedelic substances. To close the loop on psychedelics and Platonism, the idea that your ego is part of this realm of ideas, but not real in the matrix the way that you think it is, 
why then it becomes possible to do all sorts of amazing things like the early Christians who happily went to be fed to lions in the Colosseum. They knew that being a martyr would advance their cause, so they, they were happy to do this. They were following the example of their master who allowed the Roman government to tear his body apart in a gruesome public execution to demonstrate the illusory nature of the ego, to show everyone how sure he was that he's not really Jesus and you're not really you and we really all are God in disguise, so to speak, um, if you go by the Neoplatonist interpretation of Christianity. And we can close the loop now on psychedelics in the 21st century by going all the way back to before the advent of Christianity to psychedelics and their impact on Greek society. And that would be Eleusis, where they celebrated the goddess Demeter and her descent into hell to rescue her kidnapped daughter, Persephone. This myth was the coming and going of the seasons to the Greeks. And they celebrated this grain goddess Demeter by drinking a beer that had ergot on it. Ergot is the same magic mushroom that grows on cereal grains that Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD from in 1938. That secret was carefully guarded. In fact, Achilles, he was like a Eleusis townie where the Temple of Demeter was. He came from there, 14 miles outside of Athens. And he wrote a little bit too much about the mysteries in his play about it and got prosecuted, but was eventually acquitted by the government. So that tells you how seriously they took that mystery. But the mystery eventually got out and it got popularized in the Orphic cult that swept over the Greek peninsula, Will Durant writes, like a tidal wave. And you can tell there's no mystery why it was popular. They had figured out how to dose someone with ergot, but not kill them at the same time. That's the theory. Uh, we have good evidence that uh, ergot is what they used in the rites of Demeter. And who knows what the intoxicants were in the wine of Dionysus. But everyone who was anyone in the upper crust of Greek, Greek and Roman society, from Plato all the way to Caesar, went and got initiated at Eleusis. And when they were done, they described themselves as having been saved. And so a lot of the properties of the wine god Dionysus and the celebration of his wine and of the mother goddess Demeter, her daughter, and the, the magical Kykion or Kukion that has the ergot in it, all of that became the Christian faith as we know it with its Eucharist of bread and wine and its talk of salvation and all of that good stuff. So overall, my contention here is that it's Neoplatonism, whether accessed through psychedelic drugs or prayer or fasting, or meditation, any of these methods, that secret, I think, is the direction we should look to as our society starts to come undone here. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's, my, that's my monologue on Platonism and its relation to societal collapse. Does that mean we're supposed to sacrifice a goat or something? Or... <laughs> it could be a good start. Well, so practically speaking, Neoplatonism in the modern age would mean to do what then? Take LSD or do mushrooms? Our, uh... Yeah, well, not, not everyone needs to be Christopher Columbus, but I do think that we need to dispatch our best and brightest explorers to the very frontiers of the human imagination. And that perhaps psychedelics is the best ship to send them on, but what we desperately need are new ideas to sift through, and, and we, need the raw, we need them to bring back the building blocks of novelty, new ideas, so we can work with them accordingly. That's what I think. Is so people should, you know, alter their consciousness somehow and then magically receive divine inspiration. Is, uh, is that the suggestion? Yeah, almost, almost exactly. <laughs> that, that is the suggestion. There are so many great insights that come from the so-called divine inspiration. I can remember T-Mac's story of Rene Descartes making his way back across Europe after the, the Battle of White Mountain outside Prague, where a Habsburg army had gone there to put down the winter king and queen and restore order in the Holy Roman Empire. And he locked himself in a small shed with a wood stove in it. And he proceeded to have a crazy dream, like a, that he was being visited by an angel who told him that, that nature is to be conquered through number and measure. 
If you go to Rene Descartes' Wikipedia article, it will suggest that this incident was a case of exploding head syndrome. But whatever the case may be, it's like the idea for cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and all of Western philosophy, and for the Cartesian coordinate system that's the basis for all of our graphical calculations, was given rise to because of this angelic visitation, in this case of exploding head syndrome. And the, um, the list is long and endless. Uh, I'll have to do a substack and list, list them all. Another one is, um, is this man Wallace, who was the co-discoverer of the theory of evolution with Charles Darwin. And he came up with his idea while he had, was like sick with malaria and in a, in a crazy fever dream. <laughs> and he's like, he came to and he's like, by Jove, I've got it. He dashed off a letter to his friend Charles Darwin. And Darwin couldn't believe what he was reading when he got the letter because he was working on the origin of the species in that moment. And so for decades, it was called the Wallace-Darwin theory of evolution until, for reasons that are understandable in light of this story, Wallace developed an, an embarrassing interest in the occult <laughs> in his spiritualism that discredited with his scientific peers and it just became the Darwin theory of evolution that we've received today. All right, well, suppose, you know, you're a dude in your mid-30s or something, and then, you know, you've tried mushrooms, right? And then you've seen that, you know, reality, well, it seems like we're not just people in a world. There's something more going on than what it seems at any rate. Suppose you've done that, but you don't, you didn't invent calculus. Uh, what then? Well, I would, I, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I too came up short on the calculus front. But my idea was to start a substack and uh, start to spread these ideas. Um, someone else might create a great painting or a great song. The idea, I think, uh, in short, is encompassed in one word, art. I think that that way lies salvation. The example is obvious in the with the Italian Renaissance and after the fall of medieval society, the Italian Renaissance was that society roaring back to life and it was all about artistic expression. And like, I do think that artistic expression is a way of connecting people and I think Great art also has to speak the truth, as you mentioned earlier, with, you know, covering all the, rehashing all the topics we mentioned now. But in a time of system failure, it becomes harder and harder to create great art. So I would suggest that anyone who, that you should, you should or anyone should put their mind to that if they, uh, you know, if they've tried mushrooms or they've, they've tried psychedelic therapy but still can't get out of their gutter. And by the way, that was me for definitely for 10 years. It really was traveling the world and creating this substack that made me feel a lot better. Um, those are the two, the two salvations for me. When you create great art, you kind of create it for other people. It's it's almost like you're getting out of the way. You're you're just you're just trying to draw people's attention to something else. It's like you're it's like you're introducing someone on stage. That's what the great artist is like someone who's a good host who's introducing the audience to something amazing or beautiful. And that's the sort of thing I think we've got to mine out of mine out on the frontiers of the human mindscape. All right. So the plan is to do mushrooms and then tell people how good mushrooms are. Yeah, it might, for some people, it might be mushrooms. For other people, it might be writing a substack. For other people, it might be strumming a guitar. But I think truthful expression is the only starting place we have. Uh, to come at it from a slightly different tack, I think there must be a more practical application for Neoplatonism than to just go to, then to be able to glean that the lesson of mushrooms are is good or doing mushroom there there, mu there must be a more practical ex application for like the implications <laughs> that uh the psychedelic experience uh suggests the the the, um, the truth and the kernel at the core of neoplatonism is that you are not really yourself you're not the person you take yourself to be and that all of the misery that you have in your life is a result of that ego that, that of having expectations of comparing your your ego to your perception of other people. When you 
invert reality, you kind of invert your modus operandi. When you go from thinking of yourself as a creature moving around inside a large universe to realizing that the universe is inside your mind, you become highly capable. And this brings in the self-actualization or the self-improvement. What was the word you used for it? Um, uh, becoming the best version of yourself you possibly can, fulfilling your potential, ascending the hierarchy, whatever you call it. You, When you realize that you're moving around in a model of reality that's not informed by first-hand experience, but informed by all kinds of ideas from other people. When you realize that reality is mutable in the way the magicians meant it during the Middle Ages, you can become immensely powerful. You can really imprint your will inside the 4D matrix. And doing that on behalf of others, because you recognize that you're just an iteration of the wave, you're just, a, you're just another example of a pattern, Losing your sense of self and living for the purpose of helping other people is the only way I think we can really be happy. Otherwise, we're just chasing a goal. We can, like the donkey chasing the carrot, you can only reach it when you self actualize and then leverage that capability on behalf of others. Okay, well, I feel like a practical application of Neoplatonism <laughs> would be that, uh, like, watching pornography is like a ritual to Satan, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't remember how many people the study that Dr. Roland Griffiths did down at NYU, how many people were involved in that study. I think it was five long-term smokers. They'd been at it for decades, and they just couldn't put those cigarettes down. And then I think the study was done in 2003. They took one dose of mushrooms with Dr. Roland Griffiths in a lab environment at NYU, and then four of those five people put the cigarettes down and never touched them again. They would check in with these people years later, you know, keep track of them. Did you ever pick the cigarettes back up? Nope, the one dose of mushrooms did it. I think if you had a raging pornography addiction, that mushrooms might be just the thing to help you gain the perspective you need to move ahead, to move away from the habit. There, there's nothing more disturbing than seeing someone who's addicted. Like, it's all fun and games with the beers when you're like 21, but then there's people that can't put it down. And even though they're suffering negative consequences in their life, that's a really scary and uncomfortable and unsettling thing to see as another person. And so having your normal subject-object way of perceiving the universe break down and seeing yourself just, you know, just, uh, just abusing yourself <laughs> at all hours of the day, I think would have a similar effect. And so I, I guess I'm agreeing with you by restating what you've said in a very long and circuitous way. I remember when we used to sit in our religious observances as kids, we would, everyone would be trying to sense the Holy Spirit. Everyone would have their eyes closed and be really quiet. But the experiences I've had on psychedelics are much more like, uh, much more like you're on a runaway locomotive and you go to pull the brake and it snaps off in your hand. You're like, oh my God, how do we slow down? Being a, a, a sensitive seeker no longer makes any sense at all. You're trying to figure out how to turn the fire hose off at that point. <laughs> Uh, and that, that really gets to the heart of why I think that the drugs might be useful. Not only do they have they already had a huge impact vis-a-vis uh, -vis Silicon Valley and music, but they are also much quicker than spent than a lifetime devoted to yoga meditation. And I think time may in fact be of the essence here, especially as history speeds up on us. So that's the only reason I suggest that as a likely avenue. But you're right, it's the neo uh, it's the Platonist insight that we are just projections from a higher dimension that I think has the power to, to move our boulder forward. Well, I mean, I think it definitely gives you some insight into like what the rules of the game are and figuring out like what to do in light of those rules. It seems like we're still in a really uh, in our infancy, right? I mean, we're sort of just getting to a point in human history where we have like more than enough resources. Uh, we're gonna have the AI technology. Yeah, I, well, we just, we're, we're just definitely in our infancy. So yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it's only a matter of time uh, until uh, 
I don't know, our, our bodies transform. It will become like the aliens because we'll no longer have need for sexual reproduction and whatnot. Uh, yeah. Our muscles are, yeah. But yeah, I agree. Now that we've arrived at this lofty plateau, we have to wipe our brow, rest for a second, and kind of figure out, okay, now that we're here, where we have, we have the ability to create massive amounts of goods and services and distribute them with very little need for human labor, how are we going to organize ourselves? What's sensible? And part of that's going to be admitting that our current authorities have no idea what they're doing. They're just trying to keep the old system where they have privileged positions alive as long as they possibly can they're trying to distort our vision so that we don't see that it that our current system is a walking zombie but we should expect all systems to become walking zombies at some point and, and the 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 chilly realization that as leonard cohen used to sing the ship is sinking and the captain has lied it's a cold shower to have to take what do you think uh, can we put a positive you know system failure spin on all this uh, gloomy talk of system collapse uh, what do you think have you got any good ideas to some extent, the lesson of Neoplatonism would be that what you need to do is try to manifest a positive reality, right? Yeah, okay. And so I like that. That's good. Yeah, manifest a positive reality. And so You have to not do stupid stuff. And so probably eating like a box of jelly donuts is not going to manifest a positive reality. And I guess you should really think about what you're doing and whether or not this is going to manifest a positive reality. And maybe if your reality is not as positive... Maybe you just think about what you're doing more. I don't know. Maybe it will help. We'll, we'll try it and report back next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, I definitely think that trying to make headway, like you don't have to have a perfect week, right? The, the goal is to make headway <laughs> and be better than you were last week, right? Better, stronger, faster. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that we can go ahead and sign off and dedicate this week's pod to the notion of having a may this week be better than last week was you know in terms of discipline and uh doing the things that we all know we should be doing all right sounds good all righty brian looking forward to next week we'll see you then yes yeah,